Welcome, and thanks for checking out the Living Word Family Church Sermon Podcast. Before we get to the message, we'd like to invite you to check out Living Word Family Church if you don't already have a church home. For more information, you can check out our website at livingwordfamily.org. And we are in the book of Galatians. Started looking at it last week. This is Paul's letter to the churches in the region of Galatia, modern-day Turkey, including the churches of List, in, in uh, Lystra, Derby, uh, Iconium, and Pisidian Antioch. And these are Gentile congregations who had received the gospel as Paul preached it. Paul, originally a Pharisee named Saul, a man so zealous for Judaism that he had actively persecuted the church uh, until a dramatic encounter with the risen Lord so thoroughly converted him that he even changed his name. He was, so, he was such a completely different man that he went from being Saul to being Paul. And this Paul, who loved the law, who loved Israel, who loved Jerusalem, preached Jesus Christ, crucified and resurrected, to the Gentiles in Galatia and the rest of the Gentile world. He had gotten the blessing from or the right hand of fellowship from the apostles, Peter, James, John, and others in Jerusalem who knew what he was preaching. There was nothing wrong doctrinally with the gospel that Paul preached, but there were Jewish converts to Christianity other than these apostles who went into these Gentile congregations and tried to convince them that they were missing something, specifically circumcision. They needed to be circumcised. Their, their view, and again, these were believers, uh, their view was that salvation was for the Jews, that the Messiah was the Jewish Messiah, and they were okay with the idea, with this new concept that salvation had also come to the Gentiles. They had seen that the Spirit of God had been also poured out on the Gentiles. But since salvation and the Messiah were for Jews, what that meant to them was, ah, the Gentiles can become Jews too. And since the Spirit of God has already been poured out, it's kind of like, you know, ideally we would say, you make a confession of faith and, uh, then you, you, you express that faith in baptism, and then you receive the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Well, what if somebody makes a confession of faith, prays the sinner's prayer, and gets baptized in the Holy Spirit first? Uh, well, then we go ahead and baptize them, right? Uh, and there's some who would even say, well, some people got baptized before they were even saved, but now their baptism counts. And the way uh, the Jews were saying this was, okay, we get it, you're saved. You just got things a little out of order. You still have to become Jewish for this to really take. And the way you expressed becoming Jewish was to become circumcised. <sighs> they had to identify as Jews to fully identify as Christians in the Judaizers' minds. And apparently, the Galatians start to buy it. And Paul is flabbergasted. And he hammers again and again at a couple of crucial points. And first and foremost, he reminds them that they had already clearly received the Spirit of God. Let's look again in chapter 3. Uh, verses 1 through 5. We actually read this last week. 
O foolish Galatians, Galatians 3, beginning in verse 1. O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you that you should not obey the truth, before whose eyes Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed among you as crucified. This only I want to learn from you. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? Are you so foolish, having begun in the Spirit, are you now being made perfect by the flesh? Have you suffered so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? Therefore, he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you, does he do it by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? Paul's saying, look, I am a former Jew, and I am well-versed in the law, and I preached Christ crucified to you. I didn't preach the law. I didn't drag any law into my preaching, and I certainly didn't drag circumcision into it, and yet you received the Holy Spirit. There's no argument or discussion about whether or not they really had. That case seems to be closed. Miracles are taking place. And this seems to be an ongoing thing in their midst. And uh, the, you know, the, at least that's what the phrasing indicates. And for that matter, the Judaizers don't seem to be arguing with that. They're not making the case that the Galatian Christians aren't saved. They just seem to be thinking that God is kind of carrying them along in his mercy until they can complete the process by submitting to circumcision. And Paul's saying just the opposite. He's saying that those who were circumcised long before were not any more worthy or qualified for salvation than the Gentiles are. They're not by virtue of being circumcised. Salvation for all mankind, Jew and Gentile, is available only through the finished work of Christ. He sums it up best. We're going to jump ahead a little bit here, and then we'll go back and fill in some of the blanks. But in chapter 5, beginning in verse 1, he says this, Stand fast, therefore, in the liberty by which Christ has made us free, and do not be entangled again with a yoke of bondage. Indeed, I, Paul, say to you that if you become circumcised, Christ will profit you nothing. And I testify again to every man who becomes circumcised that he is a debtor to keep the whole law. You have become estranged from Christ, you who attempt to be justified by law. You have fallen from grace. For we, through the Spirit, eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness by faith. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision avails anything but faith working through love. Now, I don't believe that he's saying that those who were misled and actually got circumcised had lost their salvation. I don't think he's saying, now you've done it. Uh, You got fooled, you got circumcised, and now you're hellbound. I think all he's saying is for them to acknowledge the fact that circumcision did nothing to add to the finished work of Christ. If they think circumcision had anything to do with their salvation, completing something, now they're on a very slippery slope because now they think things can be added to their salvation, that they can be made more complete by keeping any of the law. And what's that lead to? It leads to them being under the whole law. If you've got to keep the law of circumcision, then you've got to keep the law of all these other things too. All, and we're talking about the ceremonial law, the Levitical law, the ritual law. Uh, and, if they, uh, and, it's, and it's imaginary. They'll begin to see this imaginary value in keeping more of the law. And the problem with that is then they begin to see their righteousness not as a gift of God, but as something they at least had a part in earning. And that is dangerous thinking. It's poisonous thinking. And here we need to digress for a moment or two because Paul is so strongly dismissing the value of all of these Jewish rituals and Jewish identity itself that we might ask, 
as we read this, what was the point of being a Jew in the first place? Are they or are they not God's chosen people? If we're all in the same boat, why is there even a Jewish race? Why was there even a Jewish race? And there's two major reasons. Uh, You can flip back with me, if you would, to Romans chapter 3. How many of you remember this? And I don't remember how much time we spent on it when we did Romans. I know we spent a lot of time in Romans, and we did talk about it. But just to answer that question, in chapter 3, verse 1, Paul says that. What advantage, then, has the Jew? Or what is the profit of circumcision? Much in every way, chiefly because to them were committed the oracles of God. For what if some did not believe? Will their unbelief make the faithfulness of God without effect? In Romans, he was arguing that the Jews who got saved weren't saved because they were Jews. They had that, they'd been laboring under that misconception forever. He said, in fact, there were some who didn't believe. He said, but that didn't make God untrue. It didn't make his law imperfect. It just meant that they failed. And here, he's talking about the role. He's focusing on the mission of the Jewish people. That... Uh, when he talks about the oracles of God, what he's essentially talking about is the Old Testament scriptures. Uh, do the, does the Jewish race have a special place in history? Absolutely, because they were the ones that God gave his word to. They were entrusted to keep it, to propagate it, and, and, uh, and maintain it, uh, and he revealed it to them. They had an important mission as a people, And related to that is that God used them to show us and show the world that there is a difference between those who are God's and those who are not. Keep that in mind. You know, we've discussed that a lot, though. The Jews missed a lot. God did call them a special people for himself that he was going to place in the midst of the nations to show the nations a difference. This is what it's like to be my people. And but. Right in that difference, right in that case God was making before the nations, there was always a gate, always a way for those nations to avail themselves of that same goodness. The Jews themselves weren't crazy about that idea. They just wanted to be the top dog. They thought God put them there just to show everybody how great they were. God put them there to show how great he was and to invite them into that same relationship. But Right down through the centuries, God always wanted to make a difference between his people and not his people. The other biggie, of course, in terms of the role of the Jew and the significance of the Jew is Jesus himself. Uh, a, reverse, a verse we looked at many, many times in our journey through the Bible is Genesis chapter 12, beginning in verse 1. Now the Lord had said to Abram, get out of your country, from your family and from your father's house to a land that I will show you. I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great, and you shall be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and I will curse him who curses you, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. What is he talking about here? He's talking about the Messiah. God is starting with Abraham. He's, gonna, he's going to bring through Abraham's descendants an individual, the Messiah, the Savior of the world. He's going to bless Abraham, and he's going to make him a blessing to the world. And it is through Abraham 
because of Jesus that all the world will be blessed. That's what that prophecy, that's what that word, that promise is specifically talking about. And Paul, uh, he'll talk about this covenant that God spoke to Abraham in a big way here in Galatians. So to be clear, Paul is certainly not saying that Jewishness is evil. He's not saying there's no purpose in Judaism. He's simply saying it's of no advantage when it comes to salvation itself. The Jews don't have a leg up on salvation. They have a very special place in history. They have a very special mission in God's plan, and they are the race through which God brought the Messiah, but their Jewishness doesn't save them. It doesn't get them halfway there or anything. They are saved by the blood of Jesus Christ and faith in his finished work, just like we are. So, there's so much I want to get to this morning. Let's move on. Let's read, let's read where we left off last week. Back in Galatians chapter 3, I'm going to read verse 5 again, and then we'll read a few more verses. Therefore, he who supplies the Spirit to you and does miracles among you, does he do it by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? Just as Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness, therefore know that only those who are of faith are sons of Abraham. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel to Abraham beforehand, saying, In you all the nations shall be blessed. So then those who are of faith are blessed with believing Abraham. That might be more clearly rendered as are blessed with Abraham, the believer. We're blessed the same way he is. All right? Only those who are of the faith are the sons of Abraham. Remember how big a deal when Jesus, uh, we're looking at, we've been looking at uh, a certain passage in John for several weeks on Wednesday nights, and Jesus would have these conversations with the Pharisees, the Jewish authorities. And they really stood on two things. Number one, they were disciples of Moses. Number two, they were sons of Abraham. Abraham is our father. Uh, They made a big deal out of that identity. And, And here Paul is writing, the true sons of Abraham are ones who believe like Abraham not those who carry his genetic material. Talked about that a little bit last week. Now, read on. In verse 10, For as many as are of the works of the law are under a curse, under the curse. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who does not continue in all things which are written in the book of the law to do them. But that no one is justified by the law in the sight of God is evident. For the just shall live by faith. Yet the law is not of faith, but the man who does them shall live by them. So this is throwing a lot of stuff in there. When it talks about living by the law, it says you have to do all of it. We talk about living by a code. This is taking it to a very literal extreme. You will live. You will stay alive by keeping. If you're, if you're going to hang your hat on keeping the law, you have to keep it all to live. Understand? What are we going to be, mostly alive, like the princess bride? He's not dead. He's only mostly dead, right? You're either dead or you're alive. And he's saying, if you're going to live by the law, then you have to keep all the law. But we don't. We live the just. We're not justified that way. What's it say? The just shall live by faith. Yet the law is not of faith, but the man who does them shall live by them. Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on the tree, that the blessing of Abraham might come upon the Gentiles in Christ Jesus, that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. 
the promise. That word is going to be super important today. I'm going to read three more verses, four more verses. Brethren, I speak in the manner of men. Though it is only a man's covenant, yet it is, if it is confirmed, no one annuls or adds to it. Now to Abraham and his seed were the promises made. It does not say, and to seeds, as of many, but as one, and to your seed, who is Christ. And this I say, that the law, which was 430 years later, cannot annul the covenant that was confirmed before by God in Christ, that it should make the promise of no effect. For if the inheritance is of the law, it is no longer a promise, but God gave it to Abraham by promise." Wow, there is so much here we have to unpack, and I'm going to try to unpack it quickly. First of all, it's kind of an odd way of wording it. You know, Paul's making a big deal about seed versus seeds here. And the verse in Genesis that Paul is quoting actually translates the word descendants in the New King James Version. And well, that's a plural word, right? Uh, and even where it is translated seed, like in the Old King James, uh, God speaks of numbering them. Your seed will be so numerous that they will number like, okay, so is he talking plural? Is he talking seed? It's Paul just being pedantic here. You know, we talk about a bag of seed, right? You know, you go get some seed. Well, it's a singular word, but we know what we're talking about. It's a bag of seeds. But he's not being pedantic. He's making it clear what he's talking about. He will make it clear in chapter 4 where he lays out the distinction between Ishmael and Isaac. Remember, Abraham uh, uh, read the story. He, he became the father of Ishmael through Hagar rather than through Sarah, trying to work this out on his own. What Ishmael represents in this story, and specifically for Paul here, speaking to the Galatians, Ishmael represents human effort. This is me trying to do my part to make this happen, to bring this blessing into my life, uh, to attain God's promises. And Isaac simply represents God fulfilling the promise because God promised. The point here is that God promised things to the true seed of Abraham. The Jews, the Judaizers, are trying to say to the Gentile believers that you can't inherit this kingdom because you are not Abraham's seed. But since God has saved you, he clearly wants you in that category. So good news, just get circumcised and presto, you're Abraham's seed. And Paul's saying, no, those counted as the seed of Abraham in that sense are not those who simply sprung from his loins because that would include all the descendants of Ishmael. And how many of you know the descendants of Ishmael were not part of that covenant? They're still dealing today with the descendants of Ishmael. So a lot of the problems in the Middle East have been over the millennia. no. God considers those who share Abraham's faith to be the legitimate heirs of the kingdom. That's the true seed of Abraham. The law was our tutor for a while to bring us to Christ, to set us apart for our mission as Jews. This is what Paul was saying. You know, again, the law wasn't worthless. It gave us a code to live by. It gave us a, a whole set of rules regulations, rituals that all pointed to Christ, paved the way for him, and prepared us to recognize him when he came. Being a Jew is great. It just didn't save us. But if you take this attitude that, when, again, the distinction Paul's making between seed and seeds is, you could take that if you took it to its, I guess, its logical extreme. You could say, well, 
all of the descendants of Abraham, and every religion ultimately leads to Christ. You see how that can be some sort of a multi-faith expression there. So when Paul says singular, he wasn't just saying this is... He does, ultimately, it does. It points to Christ. But it points to Christ as the only way into this relationship as one of God's legitimate descendants, legitimate heirs. Okay? Now... Verse 25, we said that you know, the law served as a tutor, as a schoolmaster. In verse 25 it says, But after faith has come, we are no longer under a tutor. Pick it up in verse 26. For you all are sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. This couldn't be more clear, could it? And do you know how exciting that is? And do you know how important, you might see that. What you ought to ask is, what's the promise? Well, the promise is salvation. The promise is right standing with God. It's justification. But there are a lot of details. There are a lot of subcategories. One of the things I speak over myself every day is, I have been covered, I have been washed clean by the blood of Christ, and therefore I am entitled, not because of me, but because of that finished work, I am entitled to every promise God made to the righteous. We see the righteous as a condition. Well, Wish I could have that, but I'm not righteous. But we are, if we're in Christ. We are the seed of Abraham. We are the inheritors of that, not because of who we are, but because of who he is. So I was thinking about when we were singing about that song, God, you're so good. Why does God heal us? Does he, why does he do things for us? Why does he bless us? Why does he open doors? Because we're good? No, because he's good. If it's because we're good, then there will always be a limit on what we can expect from God because our goodness is limited. But the righteousness that he blesses us because of is not our righteousness. It is his, and it's given to us as a gift. So much freedom in this letter. You are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. Chapter 4, we kind of covered. Paul goes and, and he talks about the difference between slaves and sons. We talked about that a little bit last week. Let's look at verse uh, 6 here. And because you are sons... God has sent forth the spirit of his son into your hearts, crying out, Abba, Father. Abba, as many of you know, is uh, roughly equivalent to the word daddy. It's a very intimate way of addressing our Father God. Uh, in verse 8, we'll pick it up in verse 8, and we'll read a little bit longer passage here. some things I need to say about this but, uh, to clear some things up. Uh, in verse 8, But then indeed, when you did not know God, you served those by which, which by nature are not God's. But now, after you have known God, or rather are known by God, how is it that you turn again to the weak and beggarly elements to which you desire again to be in bondage? You observe days and months and seasons and years. I'm afraid for you, lest I have labored for you in vain. Brethren, I urge you to become like me, for I became like you. You have not injured me at all. You know that because of a physical infirmity, I preached the gospel to you at the first and my trial, which was in my flesh, you did not despise or reject, but you received me as an angel of God, even as Christ Jesus. 
What then was the blessing you enjoyed? For I bear witness that if possible you would have plucked out your own eyes and given them to me. Have I therefore become your enemy because I tell you the truth? They zealously court you, but for no good. Yes, they want to exclude, exclude you that you may be zealous for them. But it is good to be zealous in a good thing always, and not only when I am present with you. My, my little children for whom I labor in birth again until Christ is formed in you, I would like to be present with you now and change my tone, for I have doubts about you. This is, we, again, I, I, I don't see Paul's passion. That's the word I, I mentioned a couple times last week. When I said I don't think Paul ever wrote a more passionate letter. I don't think we have a more passionate representation of Paul's uh, desire. Uh, for the people he's taught to come back into right relationship with God and right understanding of God than we have in this letter. Uh, and we just don't see it letting up. It just keeps, and, he, and it's all, it's really one, six chapters on the same point, and he just keeps getting it from different angles. Uh, and here he's talking about how exciting, how wonderful it was when he first came to them to preach the gospel, how they received him as an angel. And we get this picture of him presenting the gospel in gentleness and he he was there it said i I pre at first when i was there i the language to me sounds like he had to stop because something physical going on in his body it was because of a physical infirmity that i first preached the gospel to you it's like they took him in to help him and while he was there he began to share with them and then more people came even as he got better and listened and this church got started right but there are people who want, do you know what people want to focus on in, that, in the 8, 8 through 20, which I just read? See, Paul had a physical infirmity. And you think you can be healed? It's bizarre. You talk about taking something out of context. Number one, it's something that clearly didn't last forever. He said it was at first because of a physical infirmity while I was there. Sounds to me like something very, very temporary. Second, they want to they specify what it was. Ah, you see how he said it was a physical infirmity? And then he turns around and said, I testify if it were possible, you would have plucked your own eyes out and given them to me. That means the physical infirmity was an eye problem. And see how it says they didn't despise and reject him? That meant the eye problem was grossly disfiguring. Yeah, it, it, it meant his eyes were leaking. I mean, they, they, they op, it was ophthalmia. People think they've nailed this down. And the kicker is in chapter 6 he says see what large letters I'm writing with my own hand he could barely see he had to write with giant letters so he knew what he was writing it's not what he's talking about at all have you ever written a letter by hand or even even today if you're typing do you ever change the font when you really want to emphasize something and get somebody's attention all caps this is what Paul did when he got toward the end of this letter. Look what large letters I'm writing. He's like, pay attention to me. He's writing it big so it catches their eye. But you go back to this physical infirmity. It doesn't, stay he, it doesn't say he stayed sick, does it? Anywhere does it say he stayed infirm? Does it really identify the nature of the infirmity? People say, oh, I'd give my left arm for something like that. He'd say, you would have given, given me your eye for that. Doesn't mean there wasn't something wrong with his eye. I'm saying it doesn't matter. This wasn't a characteristic that he labored under forever. There's nothing else that indicates it was. 
He's simply reminding them of the original relationship that existed when he came to preach the gospel. He appreciated their tenderness, their, their, uh, everything they did uh, to uh, not just receive from him, but to help him, minister to him. And did it ever occur to you? Do you remember what we looked at not too long ago when Paul listed all of the things he went through when he was defending his, apostle, uh, his apostleship to the Corinthians? He was beaten with rods, How many times? Right? Shipwrecked, spent day and a night in the deep, uh, went without sleep, went without food, was stoned nearly to death. In fact, may have in fact been stoned to death and then resurrected. Did it occur to us that maybe one of these rocks hit him in the face, in the area of the eye? How could it not have? You know, stoning, typically, I don't know exactly how they did it back then, but in countries that still practice stoning, they actually put them in a pit up to their waist so they can't move. It's not like just random moving target. They put them there, and they just throw rocks. If you're throwing rocks at somebody till they die, they're going to get hit in the face. They're going to get hit in the eye. It could very well have been an injury that Paul was recovering from when he got there. Not that God couldn't have healed the injury immediately, but in this case, apparently, he was still bearing these scars, bearing the marks of the things he had suffered for Christ. I'm not saying it categorically. That happens to be what I think. But even if it was a disease, it doesn't mean he had it forever. This is, I'm just saying this is a very weak argument against healing. See, Paul had a physical infirmity. That's it. If God wants to heal, he can, but there's no sense of believing God for it. That's putting, that's making God our genie. No, it's not. It's simply taking God at his word. Ah! Anyway. <laughs> so, then he turns around. Here's what he really wants to get to. Uh, have I become your enemy, verse 16, because I tell you the truth? They zealously court you, but for no good. Yes, they want to exclude you that you may be zealous for them. He says, I, man, I poured my life, I poured my heart out to you guys. These guys come with all this zeal, and what they're doing, what are they doing? They are, they are trying to scare you into Judaism. They exclude you so that you'll be zealous for them. They come in and say, oh, it looks like God has poured out his spirit. If you want to keep it. You don't want to go back into that hell stuff, do you? You don't want to go back to being lost. You better be circumcised. Oh, well, yes, well, if that's what we got to do, if that's what we got to do to keep it, then we'll do it. We want, then, they make him zealous for the Judaizers. And Paul's like, and just coming in and preaching Christ to you, we saw this great transformation. Why would you want to go back into the law? Or why would you want to go under the law that the Jews who've always been under it couldn't keep? And then when he says in verse 20, I'd like to be present with you now and change my tone. For I have doubts about you. I think, you know, there's a number, a couple of different ways to take that, but one of them, the one I kind of subscribe to, not that it matters a whole lot, it's not a faith-deciding issue, but when he says that, when he refers to the earlier verses, you know, there I was, physical infirmity, with tenderness, you received me like an angel, you don't get the sense that he was this thundering, you know, he was simply presenting Christ crucified in a very gentle, friendly way. And he's saying, now, seeing what's happening now, if I were back with you, I'd take a different tone. I'd come on a little bit stronger, maybe a lot stronger, and you'd hear the thunder. So, then he goes on, he wraps up this discussion about Isaac and Ishmael. It's worth reading, talking about the two different covenants. Uh, But skip ahead quickly, because I want to see this. In verse, uh, in chapter 5. Let me start actually in uh, in verse 1. Stand fast, therefore, in the liberty. Stand fast, therefore, in the liberty. We actually read that part, didn't we? 
So let's skip down to verse 7. You ran well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? This persuasion does not come from him who calls you. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. Now, we've, we've seen leaven ref, uh, as kind of a uh, symbol for sin. In this case, it is, but it's specifically the sin of being under the law. A little leaven of the law leavens the whole lump. Once you let a little bit of the law in, next thing you know, they're trying to lay the whole, whole law on you. Verse 10, I have confidence in you, in the Lord, that you will have no other mind, but he who troubles you shall bear his judgment, whoever he is. And I, brethren, if I still preach circumcision, why do I still suffer persecution? Then the offense of the cross has ceased. He's talking here about the Judaizers. They would come in and say, hey, Paul, Paul would agree with what we're saying. He's Jewish. He's more Jewish than we are. We're not, we're really kind of preaching the same thing as Paul. He might have left something out here. But we're on the same sheet of music. And Paul's like, no, I'm not preaching the circumcision. If I were, the same guys that are bothering you wouldn't be bothering me. Remember, all the time, most of the time during Paul's career, the Jews are trying to kill him. Maybe not this exact same group, but a lot of them. Verse 12, how I wish, I could wish that those who trouble you would even cut themselves off. What does that mean? Because we can, it's a very tidy way of saying something that's very untidy. Because we cut themselves off. Well, cut themselves off from the, from, from the law. That would be a nice thing. Cut themselves off from Christ. Well, that's pretty damning. Cut themselves off from your life. You know what he's saying? And this is pretty graphic, but I promise you this is what he means. He's saying, these guys who are trying to convince you that cutting a little bit off will make you more spiritual, why don't they go the whole way and cut the whole thing off and get really spiritual? That's what he's saying. If circumcision makes them a little bit spiritual, why don't they just emasculate themselves? Show their real dedication to God. And we'll skip down to... No, we're not going to skip. We'll just pick it up right there in 13. For you, brethren, have been called to liberty. Only do not use liberty as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For all the law is fulfilled in one word, even in this. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, beware, lest you are consumed by one another. When I say walk in the Spirit, and you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh, I say walk in the Spirit, and you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. For the flesh lusts against the Spirit, and the Spirit against the flesh. And these are contrary to one another, so that you do not do the things that you wish. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. He's saying, and this is something he talked about in Romans as well, you know what you should do, and because you're a believer, you want to do them, but you're trying to do them in the flesh, and you're frustrated. You're trying to approach the works of the Spirit, by do, but doing it in a legalistic manner. And your flesh still has desires that war against the Spirit. You've got to let the Spirit do the work here, because the law can't. Verse 19. Now the works of the flesh are evident which are adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lewdness, idolatry, sorcery, hatred, contentions, jealousies, outbursts of wrath, selfish ambitions, dissensions, heresies, envy, murders, drunkenness, revelries, and the like, of which I tell you beforehand, just as I told you in time past, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such 
there is no law. And those who are Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live in the Spirit, let us also walk in the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. Now, there's a lot we could say about that. I just want to make a couple of quick points. When he says, you know, we, there's, his timing is perfect. He has made this beautiful case for freedom, for liberty. The law profits you nothing. Don't fall for this circumcision nonsense because it's going to take you under the whole law and you'll start living this works-based mentality. Well, this could, somebody could st- hear that and say, well, what's Paul saying? It doesn't matter what I do. I can do whatever I want. It's a free ticket to sin. Then Paul turns right around and says, don't take this liberty that Christ paid such a dear price for and use it as an opportunity to live in the flesh. You know darn good and well that your flesh wants to do things that are unpleasing to God, so you've got to let your spirit rule the flesh. And then he categorizes. These are the works. This is such an important distinction. One of the most important things in this book, he says the works, this is a plural word, and it's an outworking. This, the things that, that are done that are, of the flesh are these things, and he lists them. It's not an exhaustive list because when he gets to the end, he says, and the like. We know what the, we know what the deeds of the flesh are, the works of the flesh. He doesn't then turn around and say, but the works of the Spirit are love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Number one, he says it's the fruit Number two, it's singular. You don't separate these things. You don't have, well, I'm a, I'm a, my spirit is a love tree, but, and therefore I don't have the fruit of patience. Uh, I, my, the, I only have certain fruit of the, uh, I have this fruit of the spirit, you have that fruit of the spirit. Uh, no, the fruit of the spirit. It's this wonderful, if you're going to take the tree analogy, it's a tree that grows all these fruits together. It's one spirit, and it's the spirit that God has given us. And what it bears in the life of the, be, uh, of the believer are, are these things that are listed. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. These are wonderful qualities. But when we see it in contrast to the works of the law or the works of the flesh... We see, well, these are the things I need to stop doing. These are the things I need to start doing. And Paul's saying, no, these are the things you've been freed from. These are the things the Spirit will do through you. Do you remember the word katergadsamai from our study in James, whenever it was? When it says that the trying of your faith worketh patience. Rejoice when you fall under various trials knowing this, that the trying of your faith works patience. In Philippians, where it says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. It's not talking about working for your salvation. That's, that word is the same Greek word, katergodsemai, which is uh, the essence of something on the inside working on the outside. And I love when he's talking about the fruit of the Spirit, perfect example. And this is the example I always use to, to explain that Greek word. If you have an apple tree, Is it an apple tree because it produces apples, or does it produce apples because it's an apple tree? It produces apples because it's an apple tree, right? It's in it to produce apples. You can plant a seed, or you can plant a tree, and it will be years before you actually see the fruit. And you might have to do some things to the soil. You might have to cultivate. There might be some pruning. But it is the nature 
of, a, of an apple tree to produce apples. It is the nature of the Christian, the regenerated, born-again, spirit-filled man, woman, child of God to produce love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. You don't go out and beat an apple tree. You don't go out and beat a lemon tree for producing apples. You don't, go about, you don't go and beat an apple tree for not producing apples. What do you do? You change some things, cultivate the soil. It will produce. We don't do it by effort. It's the spirit that brings these things into our life. And that's one of the, again, we keep talking about these, these tensions or these balancing acts. Because what we come into, and we think we're free from the law, because we don't have to be circumcised. We don't have to keep these other observances. When Paul says, man, you're already getting into this days and weeks and certain, you know, they're, they're already slipping into these very Jewish observances. And we think, well, we're free from all that. We're not legalistic at all. And yet we try to please God by doing the works of the Spirit when what we need to learn how to do is simply let the Spirit live through us. To be able to say as confidently as Paul did, it's not even me that's living, in, living anymore. It's Christ living in me. That's how much my identity... What does he say about himself? I've been crucified with Christ. It's not just that he died on the cross so you wouldn't go to hell. You can be born again newness of life, a new life, a new man, a new person in Christ Jesus, a child of God. And what happens? We see something, we get a glimpse, we get a taste of what Jesus has done, and in response we say, I need to do this for God. And we start out very zealously and invariably. At some point we fail. And then we feel guilty and we beat ourselves up. Stand up. Thanks for listening. We hope that this message encouraged and equipped you in your walk with Christ. Make sure to follow us on Facebook or Instagram to stay updated with what's going on at Living Word Family Church. Have a great day.